We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples or the weaknesses of those that are weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Now, may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Jesus Christ, that you may with one mind and with one mouth glorify God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for your wisdom as we go through your word today. Lord, as we just sang together, how great are you. We're declaring your praises as we ought to, God. We pray that we would be able to fulfill what your word says right here in Romans chapter 15, Lord, that by your working in us, we would be one body and that we with one mind and one mouth would honor and glorify you. And Lord, that we would be so transformed by the spirit of your grace that wherever we go throughout this next week, whether we're at school or work or in our neighborhood, Lord, that the people we come in contact with would see you in us. They would see your attributes, your character reflecting in us, your grace, your mercy, your peace, whether it be self-control, all of these things, God, transform us by the renewing of our minds, we ask in Jesus' name, and all God's people agreed, saying, Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Some of you may know the name Joni Erickson Tata. She's somewhat well-known in many evangelical Christian circles as a well-known speaker and author. Joni has some very unique realities in her life. At a young age, she experienced a diving accident into shallow water. She broke her neck and as a result was rendered paralyzed from the neck down. Despite those difficulties that she's faced, God has used her life in a powerful, powerful way. She tells a story of her husband, Ken, who for many years has served with the Special Olympics. I'm sure many of you know what the Special Olympics are. And he's one of the coordinators for the track and field event of the Special Olympics. And Ken, while he was there one year, he blew his whistle calling all the contestants together for the 50-yard dash. And as they came to the line, the first two to come to the line was a young special needs girl with Down syndrome, really thick glasses, and then another boy, stocky, disabled, but able to run, had baggy shorts, came to the line, and then the other contestants come to the line, and he blew the whistle. They all, for a moment, were very still, got set, and then with a bang, they're off, and they're running down the track. As they round down the track, the young boy with the baggy shorts, he saw some friends of his in the infield and decided to take a little detour off the track started running towards his friends. The girl with Down syndrome, thick glasses, she was in the lead. She was approaching the finish line, but she saw her friend had run off the track, and so she followed him. She ran to him, and she gave him a hug, and she grabbed him by the hand, and she took him back to the track, and they ran together for the end of it. Although they finished in last, they finished together. Now, in that competitive environment, imagine, if you would, the same picture for the actual Olympics. It would never happen. 
never happen. In that competitive environment, I mean, we've all seen the track and field events every four years for the Summer Olympics, and you see there's always someone in those events who maybe in the hurdles, or maybe not even in the hurdles, take, take a wrong stride, they fall to the ground. And even if that person had a teammate, someone from the American team, on the same race, that person would by no means come to their aid to help them because of the competitive environment that they're in. That kind of kindness displayed in the Special Olympics is not demonstrated in the regular Olympics. We just don't see it because of the nature of the competition. The sad fact is, is that we live our lives in a perpetual competition. We live in a world that is filled with a competitive mindset, a competitive worldview. And so everything about this world in which we live, this society in which we live from the youngest age, it's teaching us to be competitive at that level, to compete with one another. We recognize the scripture talks about the Christian walk as a race. We're all running in a race together, and sometimes we bring those competitive mindsets of the world into this Christian race that we're running in. And sometimes if someone in the body of Christ falls by the wayside, instead of coming alongside them and bearing their burdens and helping them run the race, we look and say, well, one less person to compete against. We are competitive by nature. You don't even need to compete in the game to be competitive. I mean, this afternoon at 125, the Chargers are playing the Cowboys. It's a home game. You may have never even played football, and yet you are rooting for the team, and you're competitive against other people who maybe like the Cowboys over the Chargers. God bless them if he can. <laughs> I can root for the Chargers when they're playing the Cowboys. So I'll just leave it at that. But we're competitive by nature, and we bring that into the church. In a competition-driven environment such as ours, we can't imagine the kindness, the display of kindness seen in that story from the Special Olympics. But Paul writes here in Romans chapter 15, verse 1, we then who are strong ought to bear with, the New King James Version says, scruples, the infirmities, the weaknesses. We are to bear with the weaknesses of those that are weak and not to please ourselves. Now, previously in our study last week in Romans chapter 14, we considered how that we are to receive those who are weak. Look at chapter 14 again, verse 1. Romans 14, verse 1. Receive one who is weak in the faith. It couldn't get any more clear than that. It doesn't need much to interpret it. Receive one who is weak in the faith. And now in chapter 15, verse 1, Paul says, not only do we receive someone who is weak in the faith, but we also bear with them in their weaknesses. The demands of our society, the world in which we live our daily lives, they require strength and shrewdness and cunning in a world such as ours, we have sayings like, only the strong survive. We are taught from the youngest ages, especially in our public education, we are taught theories and concepts, the scientific evolutionary theories of natural selection. Another way that it's termed oftentimes is survival of the what? See, we all know that, survival of the fittest. And, and we have to recognize that that which is taught 
as scientific theory, evolutionary theory, it has ultimately social implications, whether we realize it or not. We carry those kind of thoughts over into our social interactions. So we live in a society where we actually begin to think like that. Only the strong survive, survival of the fittest. But God's kingdom and his church are to be different. God's kingdom and his church are to be different. Now, not only is our society constructed around this mindset, this worldview of survival of the fittest, but also our society is built around the idea of self-fulfillment and enjoying the pleasures for oneself, working towards experiencing pleasures for oneself. Our entire culture exists in these two areas, these things of survival of the fittest and living only for oneself. And then Paul throws this at us, Romans chapter 15, verse 1. We that are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those who are weak and not to please ourselves not for our self-fulfillment. God's kingdom and his church are to be a sanctuary from this worldly ideology. That which permeates every aspect of our society outside of the body of Christ, the sanctuary, the church, the body of Christ is to be a shelter from those things. Consider with me just how far removed and otherworldly The church, God's kingdom, is supposed to be. Look at verse 2 of Romans chapter 15, verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good leading to edification. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good leading to edification. In another book in the New Testament, the book of Galatians, it was also written by the Apostle Paul. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, Paul says, Bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens. Now, that's totally contrary to our worldview in this society. In our society, we have sayings like, you got to get your act together. Or, suck it up, princess. I I like that one. (laughs) You got to get your act together. Suck it up, princess. We we see people who are having a hard time, and we say, you got to get your act together. I'm not going to let you pull me down is the mindset of the world in which we live. Now, unfortunately, that is our natural tendency to be like that, and we bring that into the church, but the church is to be a shelter from that construct. The Bible describes that you and I are citizens of heaven in the book of Philippians chapter 3. Our citizenship as Christians is in heaven, but not only does it say our citizenship is in heaven because we know we're not there right now, The Bible says that we are ambassadors of Christ in the book of 1 Corinthians. So we are citizens of heaven, but ambassadors of Christ. So that means that our life here in this world, we live as representatives of God's kingdom. We represent his doctrine, his teaching, his worldview in the world in which we live as citizens of heaven and ambassadors of Christ. So Although our citizenship is in heaven, we are ambassadors of Christ. The church, if you will, when we gather together as the body of Christ in an environment like this, this building is not called the church, but it houses us, the church. When we gather together in this place, this is essentially the foreign embassy of the kingdom of heaven here upon earth. And we come here to receive our marching orders. We come here to receive encouragement. We come here to receive from the kingdom the word that we are to live by. And then we go out from here into the world where we are ambassadors of Christ. We're representing him. So the question then comes, 
How does my conduct, how does your conduct, as we are existing in this society, what does it say about our king, his kingdom, and the doctrine of his kingdom? You see, because many of the people that you or I will come in contact with on a daily basis probably do not read the Bible. Maybe they do not attend church. So anything that they're going to know about God and his church and the scriptures, it's going to come from what they see in us. So our lives are a demonstration. They're a reflection of his kingdom. What does my life say about the king, his kingdom, and how God desires things to be? In Paul's letter to one of his disciples, Titus, in Titus chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says that our conduct is to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. It is to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. In everything that we do, what we do is to magnify, glorify, and show forth the teaching of our King and His kingdom. Now, that's a, that's a high bar. I, I mean, just think about that for a moment. Every single, you, single thing that you do in this world in which we live is a reflection of Him. And so what do people learn about our king and his kingdom? Does our conduct represent Christ? Or is our conduct self-focused like the rest of the world? Is our conduct focused on us and for our pleasure like the rest of the world? If you would, turn in your Bibles to the right from the book of Romans to the book of Philippians. You're going to go Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and then Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 has been termed by many Bible teachers the book of joy. Paul uses those words joy and rejoicing quite a bit in this letter to the church at Philippi. Notice what he says in Philippians chapter 2 beginning at verse 3. Philippians 2 verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Let nothing, as Christians, let nothing be done through self-ambition or conceit. Now, completely contrary to the world in which we live. But this is how the church is to be. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness or humility. In humility of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Now, do you see this anywhere in the world outside of the church? That doctrine, that teaching, this is otherworldly. So we are to be walking in humility of mind, esteeming others better than ourselves. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now notice that he says, it doesn't say don't ever look out for your interests. It says look not out only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. You say, well, why should I do that? Well, verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So this is the mind of Christ. Our Lord, our God, this is his mind and this is how we are to live. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. Our world which is constantly trying to make ourselves of reputation, Jesus our example makes himself of no reputation, taking on himself the form of a bondservant, choosing to be a servant, a slave, and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself further became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So, this is completely otherworldly. 
The faith of Christ is, as Paul says here in Philippians and also in Romans chapter 15, the text that we're looking at, the faith of Christ is not about pleasing ourselves, but rather pleasing our neighbor for his good and for his growth, or for her good and their growth. So our endeavor should be the good and the growth of those who are weaker within the body. Because we're told in chapter 14, verse 1, receive those who are weaker in the faith. We're told in chapter 15, verse 1, that we're to not only receive them, but we're to bear with those that are weaker in the faith. Now, how many of you experience, remember experiencing back in grade school when you were choosing teams to say, play kickball or something? Anybody ever been in that environment? You're choosing teams. How many of you were ever the captain of a team? Any captains here? A couple of you. How many of you were the last person chosen? Look at that. Look at that. More last people chosen than the captains. Isn't that interesting? We all remember that, don't we? You're choosing teams. Let's say you're in fourth grade. Choosing teams, you're about nine years old. And you're choosing teams for kickball. And there's the captain. And there you are. You're waiting. And you're not getting chosen. And you know that if you're the captain, there's certain people you're looking at. Oh, I'm not choosing that one. I want to win, right? Competitiveness. It's drilled into us from the youngest ages. And so we all have that experience to a certain extent. And then we look at this text here in Romans chapter 15, we then who are strong, and every single one of us, let's just be honest, we all like to imagine ourselves to be the strong ones in Romans 15 verse 1. We then who are strong, we go, yeah, oh yeah, that's me. Ought to bear with the weaknesses of those who are weak. We go, yeah, I know who the weak ones are, but I'm not one of them. And not to please ourselves, but we should seek to please our neighbor for his good, for his edification. Now, when was the last time, or has there ever been a time where you have intentionally set out to live beyond yourself for the good and growth of another? Now, I don't know about you, but as I was thinking about that question this week, Two objections came to mind immediately. Two objections. Number one, if I live that way, I'm going to get trampled on. If I live like that, people are going to walk all over me. Secondly, no one else is doing that. Why should I? No one else is doing it like that. Why should I live like that? Well, the reality is yes. It is possible, it may happen that if you walk like that, you get trampled on, people will walk over you. And if the purpose of your Christian life is self-preservation and comfort, then you've put your faith in a me-centered gospel that cannot save, and God will never be glorified in that. You see, if the Christian faith is about me, then yeah, we will never do what the scriptures tell us to do here in Romans chapter 14 and Romans chapter 15. If it's all about my comfort, if it's all about my pleasure, then I'll never do these sort of things. But remember, the Christian faith is Christian. It's about Christ. It's not about me. No one else is doing it. Why should I do that? Well, look at verse 3, Romans chapter 15, verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. 
We object, we say, Lord, I read your word here, Romans chapter 14, Romans chapter 15, but no one else is doing it. And, and then we read, but, but Christ did not please himself. Jesus did it. And so the question when we object and say, well, no one else is doing it, the question is, who are we following? Who are we following? Are we following other people? Are we patterning our lives by what they do or don't do? Or are we following Jesus? Because the Christian faith is about following Jesus. And so who are we following In verse 1, we are told that we ought to live in such a way that the end goal is not our personal earthly pleasure. In verse 2, we are told that we are to live in such a way that the pleasure and good and edification of others is on our radar, that that's what we're looking for, is their good and their growth. In verse 3, we're told told that the example that we are to follow is the example of Christ who lived not for himself. That's the model that we are to adopt. The teaching of Romans chapter 15, verses 1, 2, and 3 is very, very clear. And this is, as I've been saying as we've been going through this passage, some of the most difficult passages of the Bible to apply to our lives are the ones that are the easiest to understand. I mean, you don't need to spend a lot of time interpreting what is being said here. Don't live for yourself. Live for others as Jesus did. And you say, well, gosh, that sounds really good. Of course, if you're not already feeling the objection well up within yourself, then maybe you're not fully paying attention. Objection. But Jesus lived this way and he was crucified. They killed him. If I live this way, then it means a a death. Now, it may not mean that you're crucified, but it's a certain kind of death. A certain kind of death. Notice there in verse 3, he says, Paul is quoting from the Old Testament, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Why does Paul quote this? This is kind of an interesting reference. He's quoting from the Psalms. Psalm 69, verse 9, if you want to write it down in your notes. He's quoting the second half of Psalm 69, verse 9. The first half of Psalm 69, verse 9 is also applied to Jesus in the Gospel of John. John chapter 2, verse 15, I believe it is. There in John chapter 2, we read, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. The context was this. Jesus had come to Jerusalem in John chapter 2, and he came to the temple. And when he did, he came into one of the courts of the Gentiles, one of the big open or courts of the temple. And it was most likely the court of the Gentiles, the only place where Gentiles, non-Jews, could come to worship God in the temple. And what did Jesus find in that place? Not the worship of God, but like a swap meet. People were buying and selling. People were exchanging money at very high exchange rates. And so you remember the story. If you've gone to Sunday school or ever read through the Gospels, Jesus went through and he he turned over the tables of the money changers and he caused those that were buying and selling to leave, drove them out of there. And he said, my father's house should be a house of prayer. And John, as he's recounting that story in the Gospel of John, he says, it was in fulfillment of Psalm 69, zeal for your house, Father, has eaten me up. And now here in Romans chapter 15, Paul applies the second half of that verse to Jesus as well. He says, the reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen upon me. What is meant by this? Well, simply this. The people who hated and reproached God, their hatred for God was directed at Jesus because Jesus is God incarnate. All the hatred of God the Father was directed at him. The reproaches of you, Father, have been put upon me. And what Jesus, or what Paul is applying this passage here in Romans chapter 15 to us is this, in like manner, if 
They hated Jesus, they will hate us. If they reproached him, they will reproach us as his ambassadors. So yes, they trampled upon him. It's very possible if you live like he lived as a representative of Christ, you also will experience that same sort of thing. Jesus made that very clear in the Gospels. John chapter 15, verse 18, he said, if the world hated me, know that it will hate you also. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, again, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. He says it again in Matthew chapter 24, verse 9. Then it's recorded a third time in Mark chapter 13, verse 13. You will be hated by all for my sake. Jesus wasn't holding anything back when he called us to follow him. He didn't say, you follow me, everything's going to be perfect. No, he said, you live like me, they will hate you like they hated me. The reproaches of those who reproached you will fall upon me. Would you turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, first book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, it's right after the book of Malachi, Matthew chapter 5. starting at verse 10. Matthew 5, verse 10. There Jesus says, Blessed are those, oh, how happy. That's what blessed could be translated as. Oh, how happy are those who are persecuted. Wait a minute. What do you mean, oh, how happy are those who are persecuted? Anybody here ever had someone do something mean or spiteful to you? Were you happy when that happened? No. Oh, how happy are those who are persecuted, note this, for righteousness' sake. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Going on, verse 11, blessed are you. Oh, how happy are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. Note this, for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Why? Why would I do that? Why would I rejoice if someone was treating me bad? For great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. Notice that Jesus tells us there, you will be rewarded. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're going to have the, the benefit of reaping the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute. Why? For great is your reward in heaven. Now, I suggest to you that if those rewards, if those promises of reward were not there, we would in no way rejoice when we're treated bad. Let's just be completely foolishness. Complete foolishness to rejoice if you're being treated bad, if the reward is not there, and yet there's a promise of reward. Great is your reward in heaven. They will hate you and reproach you and trample upon you because they hated, reproached, and trampled upon Jesus. And in that situation, remember this. Remember that humbly following Jesus' Jesus's example ultimately brings exaltation and salvation. Ultimately. In Philippians chapter 5, the passage that I quoted just a few minutes ago about Jesus being our example, he being in the form of God, considered not robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, took upon the form of a servant, died even the death of the cross, and then we read this. In chapter 2 of Philippians, he died even the death of the cross, therefore, because of this, God also has highly exalted him. 
highly exalted him. In those passages from Matthew and Mark's gospel where we read, you will be hated by all for my sake, Jesus went on to say, and he who endures to the end shall be saved. He who endures to the end will have a reward. There's a reward. The apostle James said in James chapter 4 verse 10, humble yourself in the sight of God and he will exalt you. He will lift you up. He wasn't just making something up. This is exactly what Jesus taught in Matthew 23 and also Luke chapter 14, Matthew 23 verse 12. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Will be exalted. There is a a promise of reward given. Well, Paul continues, Romans chapter 15, turn back there if you're not there, Romans 15 verse 4. Why is Paul quoting the Old Testament? Why is he quoting the Psalms? He tells us here in verse 4. For whatever things were written before, that is the Old Testament, they were written for our learning that we through patience, the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have what? Hope. All those things that were written in the Old Testament were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Paul takes us to the Old Testament because those things were written for us, for our instruction, which makes it all the more sad that many Christians spend very little time reading the Old Testament. You know, Barna Research and and Lifeway Research, these are two Christian research organizations like Gallup or Pew Research. They have found, Lifeway Research did a study in 2010 and they found that less than 20% of professing Christians read their Bible regularly. And of those that read their Bible regularly, most of them spend most of their time reading in the New Testament. We don't read a lot of the Old Testament, and yet Paul says here, all these things were written in the Old Testament for our learning. He also said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. He said, now all these things happened to them, the children of Israel, as examples, Greek word tupos, which is where we get our English word type. They were written as types for us. They were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the age have come. Now, it may be speculation, but how many of you sitting here today think that we might possibly be living in the last days? So if we're those who are living in the last days, we're told that we need to be students of the Old Testament scriptures because they were written for our learning. And Paul says there in verse 4 that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, we increase in our hope. Sometimes we come to sit with, to pray with, to counsel with someone within the body of Christ who's experiencing difficulty. They're going through trial. People are coming against them. Just between the the first service and this service, uh, I sat down with a lady in my office who was crying because she's going through some of the things that I'm talking about here. We go through difficulties. We go through trials. and, And people say things in the midst of that like, well, I'm just hopeless. I have no hope. You know what my answer is when people say, I just don't have any hope? I say, well, right here in the scriptures here in Romans chapter 15, it says the reason we don't have any hope is because we're not spending time learning in the scriptures through patience and the comfort of the scriptures. Through patient, loyal, deliberate study of the scriptures, we increase in our patience, our endurance. We increase in our comfort. We increase in our hope. How is that? Why is that? Well, look at verse 5, Romans 15, verse 5. Now... May the God of all patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. Know what he says there. Now may the God of all patience and comfort. You see, God is the source of patience and comfort. Now look down at verse 13. 
Now may the God of all, what? Hope. Oh, he's also the God of hope. Now look at verse 33. Now may the God of all, what? Peace. You see, he is the God of patience. He is the God of comfort. He is the God of hope. He is the God of peace. He is the source of these things. If you're in your life saying, I, I, I'm lacking patience, I'm lacking hope, I'm lacking peace, I'm lacking comfort, he is the source of those things. And if you're lacking those things, it's an indication that you're not abiding in him, abiding in his word, his word abiding in you. It's not that he's done something or retracted it from you. It's that you're not connected in the way that you ought to be. It falls back on me if I say, well, I don't have any hope. Well, why is that? Have you been spending any time with the Lord and His Word? Well, you know, not really. That we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Paul says, now may the God of all patience and comfort, verse 5, grant to you. Notice that Paul is praying here in verse 5. He's saying, may the God of all patience and comfort grant to you. In the, in the original language, it's the you plural. I know here in Southern California, in English, we don't have a you plural. If you go to the South, they have y'all. So he says here, now may God grant to y'all to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that y'all may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The loyal and deliberate study of the scriptures brings patience, comfort, and hope. And with that, Paul prays that the church would enter into the experience of patience and comfort and hope, and there that God would unite them together to be like-minded, and that with one mind and one mouth, they would glorify God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we've been going through the book of Romans, I've pointed out quite a few times that the book of Romans, one of the reasons it was written was to combat one of the early problems in the church, a division that was between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and Paul is dealing with that right here again. There was a lack of unity within the body of Christ because of cultural differences, differences that were not biblical or scriptural, but cultural reasons debatable, doubtful things that were not expressly spoken of in the scripture, and yet there's division. And Paul is aiming that the body of Christ would be one. It's God's desire that with one mind and one mouth, we would glorify him. It is glorifying to God the unity within the body of Christ. And so Paul is seeking to restore that or to bring that in. Verse 7, look at Romans 15, 7. Therefore, because God is glorified in this, because God desires this, therefore receive one another. Even if they're weaker in the faith than you, even if they are walking in certain liberties that you have limiting standards against, receive one another. Romans chapter 14, verse 1, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to doubtful disputes. Romans chapter 15, verse 1, receive those who are weaker in the faith, you who are stronger, bring them in for their good, for their growth, for their edification, not that they would stay weak but that they would grow, that they'd be edified. Therefore, receive one another. Just, look at this, verse 7, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. 
receive one another for his glory, that you'd be united with one mind and one voice glorifying God. Receive one another just as you've been received by Christ. When, when Christ Jesus received us, we were weak, we were utterly unable to stand on our own, and yet he accepted us in. If he was choosing the team, he would have chosen the one that was the weakest the first. You say, no, he wouldn't have done that. Yes, he would have. First Corinthians says God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and those things that are weak to confound those things that are strong. How many of you can identify with the foolishness and the weakness of the world? And he's chosen us. And you say, well, that's crazy. It says, yes, it's according to the foolishness of God that he's done this. Why? Because, this very reason, because God is most glorified when he takes someone who is weak and foolish and he uses them to bring forth his wisdom and his strength and then people say, it has nothing to do with that person. It has everything to do with God. He's glorified by it. Receive one another just as Christ received us to the glory of God. Verse 8, now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, for this reason I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Now, Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus... Is equal with God. He is God. He became a man. John chapter, four, John chapter 1 verse 14 says, the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Why did Jesus come? Why did God become a man? Now, there's a lot of different ways we can answer that with the scriptures, but Paul gives us two reasons here. Romans 15 verses 8 and 9. Two reasons. Number one, to Prove or confirm the promise that he made to the fathers. What fathers? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's King David. Jesus came to show that God fulfills his promise. Back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, 2, or 3 and on, there God made a promise to Abraham, the first follower of God by faith. He said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. And in you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That was a promise of the Messiah. Jesus is the blessing to all nations. So one of the reasons that Jesus came is as a fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham. Second fulfillment that Paul gives here in Romans chapter 15, verse 9, is that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. You see, there's a division between the Jews in the early church who count Abraham as their father, who had all these promises to them as the people of God, and the Gentile Christians who received God by grace through faith, and they didn't have Abraham as their father. There's this division. And Paul is contending. He's saying, we need to have unity. We need to come together so that with one mind and one mouth, we glorify God together in this world. And so he says, yes, Jesus came to fulfill the promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Jesus also came that he would be glorified. God would be glorified by Gentiles. How many Gentiles? That is non-Jews seated here today. Lift your hand up, non-Jews. Yeah, own it. That's us. Many of us, most of us. Why did Jesus came? So that you and I, Gentiles, might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. So now the Jewish Christian would stand up and say, wait a minute, show me this in the scriptures. Show me this in the Old Testament. So that's exactly what Paul does. Quoting the Psalms, Psalm 18, verse 49, he says, for this reason, I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing your name. They say, okay, that's the Psalms. What about the law, the Pentateuch? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay, you want the law? Verse 10 
And again, he says, quoting Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, rejoice, oh, what? Gentiles with his people. What's, what's God's desire? That both Jew and Gentile together would glorify God with one mind and one mouth. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Okay, I need a little bit more than the Psalms and Deuteronomy. Give me something else. Okay, Psalm 117, verse 1, verse 11. And again, praise the Lord, all you, what? Gentiles, laud him, all you peoples. All right, so we, we have Deuteronomy, we have the Psalms. What about the prophets? Look at verse 12. And again, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah says, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, there shall be a root out of Jesse. Jesse was the father of the great King David of Israel. There's going to be a branch that comes forth from Jesse's family tree. And he, that's Jesus, who shall rise to reign over the what? Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall have hope. And so Paul is showing here that both Jew and Gentile in Christ are made one and they glorify God together. Even though the Gentile who came to God by grace through faith and has liberty in Christ to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and to worship and serve God on days other than the Sabbath, and the Jew comes in and says, I cannot eat that meat, sacrifice to idols. I have a limiting standard in my life and I worship God on Sabbath. Even though they culturally are different, God makes us one in Christ that with one mind in one mouth, we may glorify God in this world. Verse 13, now may the God of hope, we've already seen previously that he's the God of patience and comfort, now he's the God of hope. Verse 33, he's the God of peace. Now may the God of hope, Paul is praying, may he fill you, y'all, may he fill you all with all joy and peace in, what's that word? Believing. I've noted today that God is the source of peace and comfort and joy and hope. He's the source of all these things that you cannot find in this world. These are other worldly values. He is the source of these things. How do we, whether we are Jewish or Gentiles, how do we lay hold of these great spiritual gifts? By believing. It's not by our lineage. It's not by not eating meat sacrificed to idols. It's not by any other trivial sort of thing that we could do. It's by putting our trust and faith in Jesus Christ for our salvation. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you, you all, may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's Paul's prayer for us, even 2,000 years after he wrote this, this is his prayer for us, that we, whatever cultural background we come from, whatever baggage we carry with us into the church, whatever spiritual strength or weakness level that we are at, that in Christ, we, by putting our faith in Christ, would be filled with all hope and joy and peace and comfort. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we would abound in these things by faith. Amen? Amen. Would to God that we would abound in these things. Why? Because in just a few minutes, we're going to leave this place and we leave the embassy to go out into the world as ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven where we are citizens. And oh, that the world would look at my life, your life, and say, you have things that I want. Now, one of the problems that we're facing in our nation politically today is a problem with immigration. We are a nation that people want to come to. 
They look at our nation from all over the world and they say, I want to go to there, the land of opportunity it's called. They want to get here. Would to God that our kingdom that we're a part of, people would see what we have in Christ. They say, I want to be a part of that kingdom. Would to God that every single week this room would be filled with people that are not citizens of heaven. They are, if you will, in the embassy of the kingdom of heaven as illegal immigrants. But that they'd become citizens of heaven. Every single one of us have friends, family members who are not citizens of heaven. You should invite them to come. They don't need papers to come here. <laughs> invite, there's some empty seats. Invite them to come. Why? So that they can know the grace, they can know the hope, the joy, the peace of believing. Let's stand and let's pray specifically for that. Father, thank you. Thank you for your great grace towards us, that in you we can have comfort and peace and hope and joy. Lord, help us to walk in these things, help these things to abound in our lives, that wherever we go this week, that people would see that and they desire to know you because of it. Lord, help us to be good ambassadors of you as we prepare to leave the embassy. Help us to reflect your glory and your grace. We thank you, Jesus. It may be as we're standing here today, you stand here recognizing that you are not yet a citizen of heaven. You do not have the hope, the joy, the comfort, and the peace that comes with believing. God has made a way for you to come into these things, to receive these things. Jesus became a man. God became a man, took my sin, your sin, all of our failings upon himself, and he died on the cross taking God's wrath upon those things so that you and I could be made right with God.